Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing new approaches to medicine. Uh, in particular, blood transfusion has been around for a long time, and it's considered a mainstay of managing severe anemia, hypovolemic shock, and trauma. But is transfusion has it become a knee-jerk approach? Is it always the best therapy? And are there new and better approaches that are more effective? So perhaps the title should be transfusion therapy, to give or not to give. Uh, here to discuss this topic is an international expert, Dr. Arya Shander. Uh, Dr. Shander is the Emeritus Chair of the Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care Medicine, pain medicine and hyperbaric medicine. I have to catch a breath just to say that at Englewood uh, Medical Center in Englewood, New Jersey. He's also an adjunct clinical professor of anesthesiology, medicine and surgery at the uh, Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai in New York and several other institutions. He serves as director of education for Team Health Anesthesiology. What's interesting is he lectures and uh, writes nationally and internationally on a variety of topics related to anesthesiology, critical care medicine, and blood management, notably blood conservation in medical and surgical patients, uh, resuscitation, management of anemia, perfusion techniques, and the list goes on. So, Arie, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you, Rob. Uh, pleasure being here. And thank you for the kind words of introduction. All deserved. Uh, RA blood transfusion has long been routine and in many circumstances life-saving uh, for acute trauma, hemorrhage, hypovolemia, some critical illnesses with inadequate oxygen, oxygen delivery, and multiple chronic disorders. So what's the early history behind this kind of therapy, transfusion? Thanks, Rob. I think, uh, you know, if we take a step back uh, and a very quick one, uh, blood was introduced as a therapy uh, when it became compatible in the early 1900s. Uh, since then, uh, during the big wars, uh, blood uh, moved on to be able to be stored and then became, in many ways, a default treatment, uh, when we talk about red cells, of anemia. Uh, patients were not offered, hospitalized patients were not offered anything other than blood transfusion if the hemoglobin was low. So what happened over time, it became available, it's easy to use, there's no reason for anyone to think about the etiology of the anemia, we can raise the hemoglobin and think that we're done. In fact, it's just a very short-term treatment versus a cure for the underlying condition. So as, as we look at, from a historical point of view, the other problem with blood, it's never undergone the rigorous uh, testing that we do with any other intervention, whether it be devices or whether it be pharmaceuticals. It sort of willed itself into medicine and has become, as I already mentioned, a default treatment rather than looking at the patient, identifying the underlying condition, and then looking for the appropriate therapy. All right, that's a perfect segue in, into where I wanted to go. I've read some of your writings and listened to you, and you've discussed and demonstrated that perhaps 
we've gone too far. And our routine indications require rethinking, almost a cultural or mindset change. Can you tell us what you mean? Yes, Rob. I think that when you look at our behavior in terms of transfusion as a therapy, uh, the word or the key word is a behavior. It's really not a scientific approach to the patient. As I already mentioned, we're looking at a number and treating a number when it comes to red cells. I could say the same with plasma, but the fact of the matter, if we center on the low-lying fruit, which is red cell transfusions, there's enormous variability because of the culture and non-science. Some people try to follow guidelines, but keep in mind those guidelines are consensus agreement. They're not based on any science the way we do it with other uh, intervention. And in fact, uh, the negative outcomes that has uh, emerged uh, both during the HIV epidemic and the hepatitis C epidemic is now uh, being looked at in terms of surgical patients and non-surgical patients being transfused where other interventions could have been uh, done and the outcome uh, is negative. So I, it sounds like you're describing a more patient-based, individualized list of indications more than solely looking at numbers. Can you elaborate and give a couple of examples? Sure. When we are looking at transfusion thresholds, uh, many people use the word trigger. I think it's probably just, again, identifying a threshold. Uh, as mentioned, we talk about red cells of hemoglobin where patients get transfused. We are avoiding looking at the etiology of that anemia. And by us taking a step back and looking at the patient rather than the laboratory values, meaning what is the etiology of the low hemoglobin as a blood loss, uh, is it loss of iron uh, or other nutrients, and then figuring out what is the best therapy. Most of the time, it's not going to be a transfusion. It's going to be either iron replenishment, B12, folate, or any other intervention. So we need to move away from the uh, product, which is blood, to the patient and making our decision based upon the etiology of the condition and what would best fit the treatment. We do that in all other areas of medicine. Unfortunately, that's not the case when it comes to transfusion. As already mentioned, it's a default reaction to a number. Well, it, it, it sort of reminds me of the book, Men Are From Mars, uh, Women uh, From Venus, where uh, we, uh, in medicine, immediately go to solution without really trying to uh, come to an understanding of the cause. Uh, so in some cases, uh, again, what has become a routine or knee-jerk response to transfusion should perhaps drop to a late, if not last resort. You know, under the theory, uh, primum non nocere, first do no harm. What's the harm in giving unnecessary blood? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, we can go back to the fact that we don't transfuse healthy people. We transfuse sick people who already have an underlying medical condition or a disease mm -hmm. that may actually affect their immune system. Now think of it, blood really is a liquid organ. And each time we give a transfusion, 
what happens is the proteins, it's not just ABO compatibility, but that bag is full of the, the donor proteins. And what we know happens is something called immune modulation that further negatively modulates the immune system of the recipient. Because as you know, uh, when we uh, transplant solid organs, we need to quiesce the immune system of the recipient. Here, there's interaction with the uh, many proteins that are coming from the donor to the recipient. And that may actually be one of the major reasons why we see negative outcomes in transfusion. So to say what's, um, you know, what's the big deal, if you will, or what's the, the risk of giving a transfusion? Well, the first one, as already mentioned, is immune modulation. But we don't uh, give any kind of therapy to patients because of its safety. We give it because of its benefit. And although you opened up by talking about the blood is used uh, in trauma and hemorrhage, uh, let's keep in mind that that is part of the intervention. If the surgeon is not there to stop the bleeding, uh, if mm -hmm. there's no other interventions that we do, so it is part of the armamentarium. But blood alone doesn't stop bleeding transfusions don't uh, stop bleeding and blood alone is not going to take care of the underlying condition that we're dealing with. Someone else has to intervene. So the benefit is not there in many of the situations. Uh, we're just looking at raising hemoglobin as an example. And the risk uh, is, is a long list of things that can happen, including infection. Uh, we know also length of stay increases, the cost increases, this is not a therapy that we should take lightly. And it should be last resort after we've identified, we've identified the etiology of the condition that we're going to treat. It's so interesting in so many of uh, our approaches, we have learned to address the underlying condition rather than again, a knee jerk or a quick trigger response. Uh, for this next question, I'm going to address you differently. Professor Shander, you're a world expert. You're quadruple boarded. You're on the editorial boards of multiple journals. You've written hundreds of national and international article articles, usually uh, as the lead author. So uh, people listen to you, but why is there resistance to the concepts you've described? Well, that's an excellent question, Rob. And as you know, uh, I mentioned early on in, in our podcast that transfusion uh, is really a culture rather than a scientific approach. And we all know that culture eats strategy to, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, so changing culture is not just prov uh, providing data, uh, not just providing information to people. It really requires a rethinking of a major process, which, by the way, is easy to do because of the availability of, availability of blood by the blood centers and the, the blood establishment. The problem is that uh, to embark on a culture change requires the whole institution uh, to get involved. And two, once you get the institution involved and the culture is changed, we need to hardwire that. So it does require a, a clearly an upstream swim, if you will, and requires enormous amount of energy, but also needs a lot of leadership. We have seen uh, the uptake worldwide 
uh, of what we call patient blood management, which is a centered approach to the patient rather than transfusion medicine. And just in 2020, late 2020, uh, the WHO has adopted it through its uh, policy brief uh, where they're talking about implementation of patient blood management throughout the globe because that's the right thing to do for patient and not only uh, treats patients well, but also enhances safety as well as improved outcome at a lower cost. It's a win-win. And you've talked about uh, resistance. How can you overcome that resistance? The, you and the WHO are not talking to everybody. Changing culture in, in healthcare is uh, has been approached by many. Uh, Joint Commission uh, ha, uh, deals with it and other accreditation organizations, uh, as well as professional uh, societies. Um, in many ways, changing culture requires you walking, going from door to door, knocking on every door and getting the majority of the individuals at least to first ask what it is that we're doing and as correct and as beneficial for the patients. So we raise awareness and show that the current status quo needs to change. And I will say that when you hear it, uh, most people respond positively knowing that they need to do uh, or they need to change what they're doing. But then the next step, of course, uh, from knowing that you need to change to actually changing requires, as I already mentioned, a, a champion, someone who's going to push this and someone who's, who could see this to uh, fruition. And uh, many individuals are over tasks and many of them rely on the fact that it's just easier to, tr to transfuse a patient at the end of the day rather than doing the right thing for their underlying condition. So this is an ongoing endeavor. This is not going to be a single generation. It's going to take uh, time for us to achieve this across the globe. What's helpful is that every country has a different health system, and some do respond to the WHO. Uh, and by the way, we are working with them on this, but they respond to the WHO and then the, the ministries of health are the ones that are pushing it. So you have a top-down approach to this in terms of changing culture. And you also have, at some point, even in those countries, a um, bottom-up approach. When the two meet, uh, you will get the satisfaction of seeing patient blood management actually working, being implemented and working in that institution. And the data that we have so far today from large demonstration projects, there's a reduction of uh, overutilization of uh, blood. Uh, there's also improved clinical outcomes. And lastly, there's a reduction in costs. Uh, this is a win-win as already mentioned. And uh, the IHI, of course, has already mentioned the fact that we want to improve patient experience uh, at a lower cost and patient blood management does that. Aria, you've spoken to a lot of uh, medical organizations and clinicians, and you've had a pretty profound effect on them. Uh, but I'm also aware that you have uh, recently completed some work that would reach out to the lay public. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Rob, and, and thank you for the question. Uh, what we've put together uh, as editors, if you will, we had many contributors, over 40 contributors from all around the world. So this was a, a clearly a, a team effort. 
However, we put together a book which is called Blood Works, and this is called an owner's manual because we do own mm -hmm. our blood. And uh, there is so much that we can do without receiving a single unit of blood from the blood bank, just understanding our own blood system and that it can actually replenish itself. There are multiple chapters in here, anything from women's health uh, to pediatrics to the elderly, and every chapter stands alone. You don't have to read the whole book. You could just go for one chapter if you have a question. And it's written in, in lay language. And what it does is actually gives you all of the current information in, a, in lay terms and prepares you to ask the right questions of your clinician. And at the same time, you can also offer your clinician help by having the information <laughs> answers. Fascinating. Uh, it's a remarkable change in our approach to a mainstay of treatment that has not been questioned for years. Yet, as you've described, a more thoughtful evaluation based on the patient and best practices will more effectively serve our patients and the healthcare system. Well, Arie, this is this is fascinating, uh, and it, it is clear that some of those changes have occurred because of the work that you and uh, have led and others also have participated in. Uh, you, you've, you, you've changed and are changing the practice of, of medicine. It's fabulous. Do you, uh, do you have some final thoughts you'd like to leave with the group? Yes. Thank you, Rob. Um, just to reiterate, we need to be patient centered mm -hmm. and we need to align uh, what we can actually do for the patient with what the patient actually wants out of healthcare. And when it comes to this issue of blood health, as, as we're talking about this, we need to make sure that we're treating the patient and we're not the laboratory values. The laboratory values are, again, uh, helpful, uh, but it's the patient that we need to address. And keep in mind that even iron deficiency anemia, which is the most prevalent cause of anemia across the globe, is not the same in a 27-year-old woman versus, say, a 65-year-old man. They're very different in terms of the etiology. But just thinking about that, you will see that you can help those patients in very different ways, and anemia can be actually cured in those situations. The other is that we need to always remember that whatever we're implementing, we have to not just be America-centric, we have to be globally-centric in the sense that we need to look at countries that don't have the resources. And here's an, a, a, an approach or concept which works even in sub-Saharan Africa where they don't have a transfusion system. So I think we need to make sure that we not just do this in US, but go globally. And lastly, we do have the evidence and we call it the three E's. If you have the evidence and you have the economy, which we already talked about the reduction of cost and reduction of uh, unnecessary un use of uh, resources, the last is the ethics. If you have those two, we're ethically bound to introduce this wherever we go. Ari, thank you. Thank you, Rob. And thanks to our listeners for joining this podcast. Uh, my goal is to serve you by discussing topics important to you. 
Please let me know what is of particular interest by communicating to me through at beyondclinicalmedicine.org.